You may find this hard to believe, but 60 songs that explain the 90s, America's favorite poorly named music podcast is back with 30 more songs than 120 songs total. I am your host, Rob Harvilla, here to bring you more shrewd musical analysis, poignant nostalgic reveries, crude personal anecdotes, and rad special guests, all with even less restraint than usual. Join us once more on 60 Saws that Explain the 90s every Wednesday on Spotify. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability, no system no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRigger.com and joining me in the studio on Earth 65, he loves the idol. It's Andy Greenwald. Is 65 the one with the spider cat or do you just pull that number out well that's the first earth that we see in across the spider verse an animated film that i went and saw on friday yeah yeah is it i according to wikipedia uh, there it is okay i just want to make sure you're doing research also let's take a moment at the top of this jam-packed podcast yeah to celebrate uh-huh chris making good on a promise oh come on get the f out chris man. welch's grape juice over here <laughs> finally went and saw a cartoon movie in the middle of the day alone uh-huh. Like we've always Do you want this to. podcast to become about cartoons? I want it to be contentious. I feel uh, like that's okay. been that's Well, it is. We're it. talking about the idol again, so it definitely <laughs> will be. We're t- today we're talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the idol, and the finale of Top Chef. Andy, it's great to see you. Great um, to see you. I don't really have any news and notes. Uh, no? You know, unless you want to talk Jack Smith. I, I do, <laughs> but maybe... Hey, can I ask you something? Yeah. Do you think they got him? Like, you know how it's like my mom yeah. was like, I think they got him. And I was like, I don't, I, I'm going to, I'm going to reserve judgment, mom. No, I think it's a wrap. Yeah. I think they got him. <laughs> I think here's my, here's my thing. Here's my galaxy brain tank. Mm-hmm. If I, this is why people tune in. If I wanted to become president or at least to become the nominee of one of the two major parties in America. Yeah. I don't know. Call me crazy. Maybe it's just, you know, maybe this is like the high school sports competitive gene kicking in, but I would <laughs> maybe be, you. I would maybe take the opportunity. Jason Street over here. <laughs> Jason Street after the pilot. After the shark fin stem cell replacement. Thing. I would um I would take the opportunity to maybe you know, get a little differentiation. Get some digs in. With the front runner yeah. who has just been indicted on federal charges of espionage. Yeah. You know, like that's just me. I feel like it is a pretty weird strategy to be like, I'm better than him, but also that guy's great. (laughs) No problem. No problem. Um, Has there ever been, okay, last thing. Do you think what 45 did is equivalent to TV critics being like, no spoilers, but you don't oh, want to miss this week's episode of House of the Dragon? Better call Saul tonight. Yeah. Is it the same thing? Is what, like, is it the same impulse that caused 
a man to pull aside people on the third hole of Did a New Jersey golf course. Did you ever used to do that back in the day them. when you were a TV critic? Would you would you be like ripe and juicy Americans tonight? Readers? You know, he, like with many things, I would like to sit in front of you today and say no. But you did. My stat sheet is clean, no asterisks, and my glide path to the hall. Uh-huh. But uh, I assume that I've engaged in all sorts of like really lame online behavior. Because the other thing is, you know, I don't know if you guys know this. This is a running bit on the podcast, The Watch. But I'm just just clawed into Facebook. Like that's where I like to be. Yeah. Um, catch up with catch up with friends, you family. Tell people what you did on Friday. And. Uh, what did I do on Friday? You fucking woke me up and you were like, man, this Trump stuff seems really bad for him. <laughs> yeah, that's because that's because I was on the news tab of Facebook before it's fucking like banned in this state because they won't pay for it. No, but honestly, if I had gotten that news from Facebook, I would have been like, seems like there's a lot of sides to this issue. Yeah, right. Um, and then it also would have said, here's the 20 spider variants you missed. No, I, uh, Facebook does this thing, Chris, I'm just going to let you know. Where it's just like, you have memories. I'm like, thank you. It's wonderful reaching older age. Uh And the memories are all me posting on Facebook in like 2008, like when it was new. Yeah. In the style of the time, which was your name was there. And so you completed the sentence. Andy Greenwald is. Yes. So happy about Barack Obama winning the primary. Literally, that's one of them. Another one is. (laughs) is wondering if these clouds mean a thunderstorm in Brooklyn today. So like, it is so lame. literally haven't changed at all since. <laughs> no, but now I own the first-person pronoun. Yeah. yeah. And now I do it. Right. I do it. So how was your weekend? Uh, fine, because it was, it was buoyed by mm. this, this journey into a world that I had heretofore not experienced. The Spider-Verse? The world, of, the world of moving pictures and yeah. drawing. Yeah. Because you had never seen the first one. You didn't do it. I did. You did, did watch it? Because so people know we were recording last week. And then when we finished recording, Chris was like, I think I'm going to go see the movie. And I was like, that's fantastic. And Couldn't so I, do it. I gave you a window, much like, you know, a grace period you didn't give me with your airplane texts when I was in the theater. But I was like, I'm going to give him some space. It's, a, it's hard for him to go see a cartoon movie by himself. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I was like, so how was it? And you were like, I'm watching Blood Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> Which at first I didn't understand was related to your duties on rewatchables. You thought I just chose like at, at, when given like two paths in a wood <laughs> yes. that diverged. I was like, I chose the blood diamond one. A million percent. And I think most people feel like that is on brand as well. No, duty called. I had to watch blood diamond. I mean, I chose, I, I lovingly and, and excitedly watched blood diamond for rewatchables. Yeah. But uh, I did go to a matinee screening of Across the Spider-Verse. Okay. You know, I was the only single adult man there which was chill and one thing that's funny is that like i'm not like really what <laughs> just wondering like did you have to keep a couple seats around you per megan's list like well what was the... i did be i i kept moving because <laughs> respectfully very chill the, so i was sitting in the row that you know in the, in the i'll just name names the amc at the glendale uh mall you know yeah i was sitting in the row that's like in between the two sections of yeah. the theater because oh sure a family had decided to sit to occupy my seat that I had selected oh and rather than be like why don't you just move your family of five I was just like you know what I'm a I'm a visitor here in the Spider Verse by the way that's also very L A City Council where you were like instead of discouraging <laughs> crime let's just tell car companies to make their cars harder to steal I put the catalytic converter in a cage this is right. very, very so I sat uh, in the woke. middle which in I think uh. 
it, which is problematic in its own way. But the entire movie, a kid was kicking the railing above my head. So mm. did that affect my enjoyment of the film? Listener? Yes. It did not. <laughs> really? It did not. Because this one's a banger, Andy. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a banger. And, you know, I, I want to really uh, pull myself back from being like, not since or the greatest ever I'm or not blah, blah, that, blah. So. Because I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of, of you know, big animated films. I, I just, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I was super curious because Sean mm-hmm. said, first five-star movie, one of the best movies of the last couple of years. You were like... I'll let you fill in your your mm-hmm. blanks about how how enthusiastic you want to be about it. I hadn't seen Into, but I I did watch it beforehand because okay. I wanted to make sure I watched it on not as much of a booming system as the one I saw it. Not a metro booming system. Yeah, but uh, what a fantastic movie! And I have a lot to say about it, but I want to okay. pr- I want to set you up because I feel like not only do you have you, your your web slingers are a little bit more potent than not mine, but also I yeah. think you have a little bit more of a feel for it, and I also think. Mm-hmm. As a father of daughters. Here we go. This one this one probably hit home a little bit. It hit different. Yeah. Well, I mean, I feel like there's a bunch of different ways to praise this movie. And I think, I, I, I don't, you were saying that you don't have a lot of animated movies to compare it to. I mean, I think this is better than just about any other superhero movie. Yeah. Well, that was the thing that I really wanted to talk about is, you know, we can be pretty hard on, on recent superhero movie fair because we want more from it mm-hmm. I think we just like not just like oh we think it's stupid we we actually are like hey man like we are albeit the graying aging out we are still the target audience for this we yeah we really would like if these were good we would sing their praises and to see spider across the spider verse you realize like just what a desert we have been living in yeah I, I don't know which like I, if we start at the highest possible altitude um this movie gave me or restored my faith in mainstream entertainment mm-hmm. in a really profound way. Uh, I felt transported. I felt elated. I felt uplifted. I just felt joy throughout the entire thing. And so much of that comes from how how much careful consideration goes into every second, every frame. It is It is loud, but it is not noisy. It is kinetic, but it is not overly busy. It's beautiful. It's choreographed. The emotional storylines are pure and true. And it, you know, people love when I use the word earns, but yeah, it does get darker. It gets chaotic. There's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of moving spider people, but it is so true to the emotional journey of its lead and leads that it's a pleasure to, you know, swing through the skyscrapers with it, the skyscrapers of plot. It's so astounding to me because I think that one thing that we've become conditioned to accept is that this is the world that we live in in terms of the pop culture products we get Mm -hmm. and that these are hard to make and there are a lot of people to please and a lot of mouths to fill and a lot of boxes to tick in order to accomplish them. And so we say, well, we grade on points of expectation or intention. Um, Even movies that have their hearts in the right place, like the Black Panther sequel, we quietly overrate or in the case of this podcast don't really cover at all because we're like well they were dealt an incredibly tragic hand by losing the star and also this movie became important to the larger MCU projects you have to shoehorn Julie Louis-Dreyfus into it and you have to do all these other things so it's just amazing that there's a beating heart in it at all Mm -hmm. Spider-Verse makes all of those arguments look like total bullshit 
because they actually ran towards making it more complicated and, and essentially saying that all of these movies are the same in, in the same universe, or sorry, the same multiverse, right? It wrapped its arms around everything, even stuff it doesn't need to, like all of the Sony movies. Yeah. And even the MCU with a few throwaway lines. And it does it with style and wit. I just think it is a, the first movie was like this too, but the degree to which it improved upon the first movie, I just think it's a game changer. And I think everybody else has just got to get their shit together or honestly give up because they can't compete. So one of the things that I loved about it was the palpable feeling of creativity in every single frame. And what I mean by that is there were parts of it that made me feel like I felt when I was in first grade or kindergarten and I was just drawing. Yeah. You know, and you are trying to create an, a sensation of like, you know, I would, I would draw like ninjas because I learned how to draw ninjas really young. Really? Well, Can I you learned. you still draw ninjas? Uh, I mean, it's just a bunch of triangles and then blood spewing everywhere, which was <laughs> something for my child psychologist. Kaya, turn the TikTok camera on. Do we have that? I think. Uh... But it like you would basically try to create movement. You would try to create emotion. You would try to create the sense of action like by like pouring yourself into a, uh-huh. a yeah. marker stroke or a brush stroke or a pencil stroke or whatever. So not only could you see that on the screen, but you also had 22nd century <laughs> technology at work. You also had, especially my favorite part was the Daniel Kaluuya, like the Hobie character and the zine, the cutout zine, mm-hmm. punk pastiche yeah. stuff, which I'm sure like you could say like, you know, Sid Vicious is turning in his grave, but like, give me a break. And like, it was just really interesting to see all of these different styles collide. And yet, on top of all these different like formal innovations, there are some set pieces in this movie, which is essentially a combination. I think if I had one critique Mm -hmm. of the movie, it would be the set pieces are so loud and chaotic. And then the chamber pieces are Mm -hmm. so quiet and sometimes long that it kind of feels like you're sprinting and then walking, and then sprinting, and then walking. You're never trotting, if that huh. makes sense. But that is like a really like light, like don't even worry about it critique. But the mechanics of the set pieces, and I understand it's prohibitively expensive to like book the Guggenheim, for instance, where the first major action set piece takes place. Like you couldn't... Oh, you couldn't do it in a live you action. You couldn't do it in a live action, maybe. We sure though? Yeah, exactly. And... Isn't it the thought that counts? Isn't it the idea of like, oh, like think about this structure. Think about how it's built. Think about how these levels are here. And what would happen if a piece of art came to life, like the vulture, and he looked like a Da Vinci drawing jumping around. And you're like, well, yeah, but you can do that in a cartoon or an animated film. And it's like, yeah, but like Doctor Strange is animated. Yep. You know, Quantumverse is animated. They could have done anything with those movies. And you get into like, the VFX people and the 25-hour days that they're working and how you know under the gun they are and the last second changes. And I would just hold this film up as you let Lord and Miller and the rest of the creative team on this responsible for this. And you know, because of COVID, they had a little bit more time to work on this, but yeah. this is still the longest, I think the most people working on it, right? Didn't have the like the largest staff. Probably. This is what you get. You get something yeah, truly I- remarkable. And there are things that happen in this movie, the the Spider Society chase getting out, the Guggenheim, and even some of the quieter moments like Miles and Gwen going through Brooklyn. The Miles and Gwen scene is absolutely beautiful and it fills you with, it's, it's, I keep saying joy. 
like it's a, it's an emotional action yeah. scene and it's and it's exciting and it's romantic and you feel for it. I think that what you're speaking to is really an important point because I think that the history of comic books in mainstream entertainment has always been one of deep, deep, deep self-doubt and self-loathing, which is to say for years before the first Spider-Man movie, the Tobey Maguire movie, there was this idea that comic books can't be mainstream because they're for nerds. Nobody's going to get this. And then the, the, those movies were really exciting and good, and it, and it suddenly cracked the code that, oh, no, everybody understands the hero's journey part of this. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands the wanting to be someone else, and also everybody can understand certainly the bean counters in old Hollywood, old Hollywood being 20 years ago, that there's opportunity here for big, loud action set pieces that will get people in the theaters in the summertime. Um, but from that point, there continues to be, and this isn't just a comic book entertainment thing, it's just an entertainment thing, fear. Like, we can't be too weird. We can't be too out there. We can't actually capture some of the just hyperkinetic, ecstatic mania of creativity that comic books alone can do. Instead, we'll do the multiverse, but it'll be mostly purple and green. Or it'll be three characters. You know, it'll, we, we have to tame it down. We have to tamp it down. And these movies do everything that you're not supposed to do visually, right? It crosses... It, it mixes up all different styles of art in one cartoon mm-hmm. on top of each other. It does that with the, the, the soundtrack, too. It deals with, it, it has, like, text on screen. It's self-referential. It's funny, and it's gripping, and sometimes it's funny and gripping at the same time. Yeah. It, it doesn't follow the rules. It does follow the rules of comic books in a way that just feels really exciting. Yeah, it, and sometimes, like, it, it's funny, like, uh, whenever I'm reading... Like, whenever I read, like, a mm-hmm. graphic novel and compendium of a bunch of issues, like, usually when there's something coming on TV or in the movies, and it's like, I want to read the comics version of this mm-hmm. story. So I read Secret uh, Secret Wars, you know, because that's largely rumored to be what comes next. Yeah. Year. I'll read it in, like, a night, even if it's, like, 180 pages or whatever. And my wife's like, you read that so fast. And I'm like, I think that's the point. Like, you can kind of... Mm-hmm. go and analyze every frame, but there's something of the, like, I am creating my own... Flipping. Yeah, your own rhythm. My own rhythm, and it almost goes back to, like, you know, if you uh, spin through a bunch of different pictures and it makes it look like they're moving kind of thing. Yeah. And there, I, I, there is a feeling of that, that, like, original, I'm being blown away by this feeling when watching this movie. And I have to say, uh, 45-year-old idol fan that I am... Yeah. I thought, like, I was pretty moved by, like, you're the anomaly. Oh, my God. Like, the Miguel, like, like the, the, and that has been done in every single multiversal, like, story that we have seen where somebody is confronted with, like, you know, you screwed something up and now your parents are dead or you screwed something up and your it, aunt's the, dead or you screwed something up and you never... The Flash yeah. trailer ran before this and it's the same story. Exactly. But for some reason, I think the fact that this is, like, superheroes often are, like, outsiders looking for acceptance. They form these groups to create a surrogate family. And this guy thinks that he's finally found like people who will appreciate and love him for mm-hmm. who he really is. Mm-hmm. And he finds out that he is the reject of rejects. And yeah. I, I thought that was like just really well done. And I, and his, it, it you know, I, I know that people have compared this to like, you know, you do the, the Star Wars, mm-hmm. the first one, you do Empire, gets dark in the second mm-hmm. one. This certainly ends on a dark note. Mm-hmm. I was wondering whether or not, when you're watching this movie, you probably had a sense that there was going to be, obviously, a sequel, but were you surprised when you got about, like, 30 minutes left, and you're like, I don't think they're wrapping this up. I think that I had, I think I knew, because when they originally announced this movie, it was called uh, Across the Spider-Verse Part 1. Oh, yeah. 
Um, so I did have a sense that there was going to be a cliffhanger. I didn't understand where it was going. And I didn't know what where else there was to go. So I was delighted when I suddenly realized that he was in the wrong place. And they did that classic Silence of the Lambs. She's outside the window, but it's the wrong, or outside the house, that it's the wrong house thing. You rarely see that in cartoons, although it's become a trope. Um, I want to talk about, yeah, I want to talk about the trilogy part. I want to talk about the emotion the emotional anchor of Miles and his family, which is just astonishing. But just one last note about like the, is this too weird or is this too much? I just feel like something that isn't appreciated enough, certainly in the boardrooms of Hollywood, is like, we don't want to be spoon-fed the things that we've already seen. We want to be challenged by something that you care about, that you're passionate about, and to be let in. That's a very different feeling and an exciting one. And I think that for people to see these movies, even if they haven't read comic books, even if they don't understand the tortured history of the Ben Riley Scarlet Spider character, which I'm very happy to share um, with our listeners. You get it. Is you there like a it. is and there like a comic run with the Cowboy Spider Man? Yeah, all of these characters, uh, not all, but almost all of them have some. Um, and I, Do you still uh, read Spider Man? Like no, okay, but I I, I keep up. You know what I mean? Um, same way I am with like baseball season pre September. Like I'm 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 watching who's coming up and down on the averages. I the. Because I just want to make a small before we. I, I'm worried we're going to forget bad, to say it. Batting average, Jeff. Like, <laughs> you get up every day. You, you open USA yeah. Today, and you're like, "Who's leading the National League yeah. in batting average and wins and losses?" Because yeah. I feel like those are the only two true stats that still matter that people care about. I just want to make a the point that like these movies, when you see Miles's room and the posters he has and his aesthetic, and I'm like, "Yeah, this seems this seems lived in. This seems considered. He seems like a real person to me." These movies made me get post Malone. You know what I mean? Like the soundtrack Mm -hmm. is this mishmash of artists that I feel like I've been dismissive of or haven't understood or heard. And it's an entirely conceived aesthetic that makes sense. And when you're dropped into it, you're just delighted. When we get to Brooklyn and they play the Rakim song, like, I don't know how many people have heard that song before (laughs) in the target audience or the kid who's kicking you in the rail probably wasn't, you know, to the rhythm of, uh, of the track. But like, Everyone understands what it is. And I just think that's an incredibly powerful thing. To your point about the trilogies, I just feel like our generation ruined everything. Okay, no, the baby boomers really ruined everything. But we ruined everything in terms of um, pop culture because the first Star Wars trilogy became the de facto, everything has to be a trilogy and it has to follow that pattern. And guess what, guys? Not everything fucking needs to be a trilogy. (laughs) There used to be stories that could just tell you a whole story in a movie. Yeah. Remember that? Um, this movie is the exception that maybe that proves the rule because this earned it. Yeah. This took everything in the first movie and made it bigger and deeper and richer and built on it and did the kind of tricky retconning that doesn't always work, which was the creation of a villain from a throwaway moment in the first movie. And then even within this movie, took a villain, introduced him as a joke that matched the tone of the movie we thought we were getting. And then he became something... Like everything is tongue-in-cheek yes. and everything is kind of like, never mind, you know? But like, it became deeper and yeah. richer over the course of it. And it earns the third movie in a way well, that also, you rarely see. Well, also, the spot, the the Jason Schwartzman villain is like, wants the same thing as Spider-Man. Yeah. He wants to be taken seriously. He wants to be yeah. real, you know what I mean? And I, I, I thought it was really well-written. Um, you know, there's... Okay, oh so it's so funny. It's really funny, and I just thought that, like, watching this, and and I'd mentioned that I'd watched Wick Four again, you know, mm-hmm. on the on the plane, and you know, you see the sequences in Wick Four, and I won't give anything like big away, but like, there's a Japan sequence, there's a, a couple of sequences in Paris where you're like, holy shit, like that is 
I'll fr- I'll think about the the stairs for the rest of my movie going days. Really? In Wick? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's because like Stahelski actually was like, I have an idea. And I always go back to there's a Brian De Palma interview. I mean, I think it's part of the Bombback documentary that he made, but it's like De Palma be like being like, I look at these like drone shots or I look at like a shot where it's like, you know, whatever. And I'm just like, what's the idea in this shot? Yeah. And I thought that this movie was just bursting with ideas. And that was just strangely, I mean, I I can't believe how refreshing it was. And I think it's sad that it's not more common. I do want to ask you this. Yes. How did we wind up in the place where every goddamn thing is telling a multiversal story? It's really weird. I mean, it it is deeply weird. And that that is now just the understood storytelling mechanism it does speak to, I think it speaks to two things. I was going to say it's connected to what's going on with comic books generally, but I think it also speaks to the, the, our pop culture condition. The multiversal storyline thing is kind of what saved comics. If people point to something in the 80s where Marvel was kicking DC's ass, and the reason, one of the reasons it was kicking DC's ass is because Marvel could credibly say they had been telling one story for 25 years. That from Fantastic Four number one, and then even before that, with characters like the Submariner and the original Human Torch, that they and Captain America, that then got brought into the mythology, it had been one consistent story, and it was still manageable. That there would always be these little asterisks, like yeah. editor's note. Check this out. We'll Johnny Storm is yeah. talking about the time he he met Wolverine and whatever, and he'd be like, "Oh wow, that's cool. I'll go buy that comic." Um, DC had such a longer history that it was really hard to do that because there was the Justice Society of America with a Green Lantern who was a rich guy uh, wearing a suit. And then a few years later, Green Lanterns were an international corps of space cops right. with magic rings that could do whatever. And it didn't really agree. There were three flashes then, and that was seen as a problem. So they did the storyline called Crisis on Infinite Earths, which suggested the idea of a multiverse and that there would be they needed to be rectified. And coming out of that crisis, there was one DC story. They, they just hammered everything together. Some things never existed or got folded in. And now there was one storyline. And then what was Flashpoint? Uh, Flashpoint was like the 19th time they've done that since then. Oh, okay. So they, every so, once in a while, they basically are like, uh-oh. Yes. Like, there's and, multiple and, timelines. Yeah. And then as recently as like you know 20 years ago, when Miles Morales was introduced, Miles Morales was introduced in a line of comics called Ultimate Comics that Marvel started. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was when Marvel was flailing. And they were like, our comics now have gotten too unwieldy because in order to read X-Men, you have to pick up issue 381 of Uncanny X-Men and understand that you've missed decades of this shit. <laughs> and you're like, yes. <laughs> I, know, I love that. But I was, uh, you know. Mother, a- back to the comic store. <laughs> but yeah, and you were like, hey, come watch Band of Brothers with me. And I was like, sorry, dog. Sorry, dog. I think Archangel's about to become Angel again. Maybe. Uh, um, so... They launched these comics called Ultimate Comics, Ultimate Spider-Man number one, Ultimate X-Men number one, which basically, okay, what if we started it now? And it's modern. And some of the stories were good, some were forgettable. And what was interesting about Ultimate Spider-Man is that they just did the Peter Parker story again. Mm -hmm. And then, and it was stylish and good. And also in keeping with storytelling of the time, I think Spider-Man's first appearance in Amazing Fantasy 15, it tells the entire Uncle Ben story in one page. And then Spider-Man's just like, zippity-doo-dah, time to swing around the city. Ultimate Comics took six to eight issues to tell that story. Okay. Well, this will work well in television. Anyway, a bunch of years later, Brian Michael Bendis, who gets a credit on these movies, was writing that and was like, you know, I feel like we got it wrong. It wouldn't be Peter Parker in Queens. It would be someone, and he he created a character, Miles Morales in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And that character became Ultimate Spider-Man and became very successful. And then Marvel had a multiversal problem, which is, 
we can't have two Spider-Men. We've been telling, I said Spider-Man, like, like some fucking orthodontist on the Upper East Side. <laughs> Donald Spider-Man. Ben- Benjamin Spider-Man. Um, we'll see you now. <laughs> he certainly will. Yeah. How can we have both? And then they learned that maybe this is actually a benefit. This is actually good. People love this. They folded Miles into the MCU proper in the Secret Wars comic you're talking about. Yeah. And then since then, though, they were like, because it's, it's just interesting. The whole appeal of Spider-Man has always been, always, for the first 50 years, that there was one, one guy. Now, all of a sudden, a whole generation is learning the appeal of it is that he is an archetypal cross-universal figure that can be a horse. And that they, that he, I love the idea that there are canon events and that there are yes. things that have to happen to each Spider-Man so, to make him an Upper West Side dentist, so, you know, and that, but, that is... Like, but, but the thing that, sorry, to answer you, this is the longest answer to a very good question, and I apologize. You were saying, like, why does everything have to be multiversal? I think part of it is that's another piece of comic book storytelling that has become mainstreamed. But I think the deeper answer is we are profoundly culturally uncomfortable with uncertainty or things that don't agree or line up. And so all of this pop culture we're getting now, not all of it, a huge amount of it that even we cover on the show is an attempt to fix the joists that don't line up perfectly in our canonical entertainment. So they're... Narratively or... Nar- nar- or- Yes, because like, I I think that it it, it does a couple of things for but, one for one. But go ahead, finish. But, but just to say. say, like so much of the like so much of the Filoni verse is just like I'm going to fix the Star Wars story by putting my story into it and making sure we understand that okay, Boba Fett was left a dangling, literally dangling into the jaw of a sand beast. But here's what happened. I'm going to tell you what happened because there's an answer. Mm-hmm. There has to be an answer. And then that sort of bleeds into well, how can Tobey Maguire be Spider Man and then also Andrew Garfield? and also a cartoon Miles Morales. And these movies are like, don't worry, there's a plan for that. It's this, I think it, it speaks to some deep, honestly deep American anxiety that we might not have a plan. We might not have a, that, that 9-11 didn't do this I think it's, us, I think that, it's our, the human desire to kill death. Yes, but also to, to eliminate I it, I uncertainty. I think they don't ever, we don't ever want anything to be over and we don't want anything to ever die. Which is weird because... Mm-hmm. The moments that you remember both in your life and the moments that you remember in the culture that you like mm-hmm. t- typically have to do with endings or deaths. You know, I mean, like those those moments of, I don't want to spoil any shows just off the top of my head, but you think about moments in The Sopranos or moments in Breaking Bad or moments in whatever the TV shows mm-hmm. that we love that often revolve around when this happened. Mm-hmm. And it's not like then there's a multiversal version of Albuquerque where we see mm-hmm. Jane. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I also think that there's something to be said for the idea that the studios are making something that their audience wants, which is the audience wants a say in who is in these movies. And now they mm-hmm. have that say because everybody can be in these movies. You don't have to choose just one Reed Richards. You don't have to choose just mm-hmm. one Spider-Man. You don't ever have to worry about if you like the Andrew Garfield one or if you liked the Miles Morales one or if you like Tom Holland. They're all going to be in your life, right? Like, you don't have to be like, God, you know, I was a really big Michael Keaton fan, but I guess everything changes and I get older. It's like, no, but next weekend, fucking Michael Keaton is going to be on big screens playing Batman, apparently as the co-star of The Flash. I haven't seen that movie, but apparently everybody else has, even though it isn't out yet. Uh, But but what do you think of that? Like, the idea that basically it's like this multiversal storytelling is a reaction to what audiences actually want. Well, yeah, I mean, I think think audiences are comic book nerds now. I mean, they're just completists. They want it all to dovetail and make sense. I think the danger, and it's the, it's the 
the rabbit hole that both comics and now the MCU has fallen into is that it, it becomes homework. That it is not yeah. fun, surprising, clever, interesting, uh, or, or even secondary to the story. It is the story. And one of the things about Spider-Verse that I think is so delightful is what I was saying before is that you don't need to know anything, anything about any of this to find it funny, bizarre, interesting. Like, like do you think people come out of that movie being like, well, they must have invented the uh, dinosaur Spider-Man for the movie. They didn't. But who cares? It's a dinosaur fucking Spider-Man. Similarly, I have never, and I apologize for this because I know that you actually have a small shareholder stake in this, I have not seen any of the Tom Hardy Venom films. Apparently, the scene where Spot enters into the real world and there's a, the a woman, woman behind the counter. That's a Venom, Venom yeah. thing. I don't know. Didn't take anything away from my... I, uh, what, you know what I understood about that? It was funny. So that was fine. Similarly, Donald Glover sitting in a cage is either an incredibly, like, both clever and, like, righteous act of timeline fixing, or it's just bizarre. And either way, it works, because it's it's not the movie. And when I say timeline fixing, it's because Donald Glover played Aaron Morales, soon to become the Prowler, in one of the Tom Holland movies. Mm-hmm. And there was all this idea, there was, there was a lot of talk then that that was laying the seeds for Miles Morales to be in the live-action MCU Right, And then when this movie took off, that storyline was kind of abandoned, wisely so. Though, but in this, he clearly became the Prowler. Yes, and, and I would say that Tom Holland has been pretty vocal about yes. being like, all the tea leaves would suggest they're going to do another Spider-Man live-action movie with Tom Holland as Spider-Man, but that that might also usher in right. live-action Miles Morales. Which, look, th- everything is going to happen, everything's going to get made, and hopefully some of it will be good, but... I think it's important to that's, say that, like, that's the attitude. I, yeah, just, just <laughs> drown, drown me in your bullshit, Hollywood. But this character and this version of the character is perfect, is iconic. And like, I really, you said you weren't going to overreact. I will. Like, watching this movie, I felt like a kid, like, just connected to the timelessness of the artistic cosmos in a way that you don't always get. And you know, speaking of prom- speaking of broken promises, like you get that from in terms of kids entertainment, like like a Miyazaki movie mm. or something, or sure. or Bluey, where I'm like, this stuff is pure lawful good in a world where most of this stuff is at best chaotic neutral, right. if not downright evil. Like it's actually gonna last and it matters. I the voice acting. I wanted to ask you about this. The fucking voice acting in this movie is god tier. Like, what Shamik Moore does as Miles is incredible. It's incredible. Haley Steinfeld as, as Gwen. Like, these are real people that I care about more than most movies I've seen. Because, you know, it, 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 it pays attention to I really specificity like and emotion. And, and Brian Tyree Henry. Oh, my God. They're so good. Yeah, they're great. Great characters. Great world. Schwartzman's great. Schwartzman is amazing. The yeah. Schwartzman sons is fucking <laughs> on. Right? Yeah. Like, there was a moment when we were like, that kid was really good in Rushmore. Is he going to be? Is he going to be an actor? Does he have a long career? Yeah, we're twenty five years in now, yeah. and he's getting better. He's, it's an amazing performance. But Daniel Kaluuya, yeah, Oscar Isaac, like just there's yeah, no, the Oscar, there's no, the whole Miguel thing was really cool. I didn't know anything about Miguel O'Hara. Is that like a big thing? So every few years, Marvel uh, would like here's a whole new universe, and it was before they had to have any connection to it. And in the nineties, like when I was in high school, when I was actually still reading comics their big initiative was uh, 2099, Uh where there was like dark future versions of all your characters. And there was a 
Punisher 2099, and there was a... <laughs> a dark future uh, version of Punisher. The 90s were dark in comics, even though in retrospect... <laughs> but like, how, how much darker could it get for Frank? <laughs> do, you, do you want me to quote from the... And then Spider-Man 2099, where Miguel O'Hara is the hero of Nueva York, and like, kind of correctly forgotten, I would mm-hmm. say, as a character in comics, at least... Was he like was a Dirty Harry version of Spider-Man, kind of? It was, he, was, he was dark to match his city. Yeah. yeah, and um, I don't remember where the, like, maybe he's also a vampire stuff comes from. I don't remember any of that. But but a lot of these characters, like like the baby, um, Mayday Parker, is Spider-Girl from another, like, let's do a few years in the future where Peter and Mary Jane are married and they have a kid and she becomes, like, there's precedent for these characters. Yeah. Not necessarily all being in a um, headquarters together. But yeah, like, she, again, taking a character like Spider-Man 2099 and not being so precious as to, like, he had an arc. He had a reason for existing. But he was also the only one without a sense of humor. And the movie runs at that. It doesn't run away from that. And I appreciated that. Like, even the when he shows up, Miles shows up and makes a joke. And then everyone makes the joke because yeah. they're all wisecracking, which could get a little annoying. I liked the ending a lot. Yeah. Uh, if I was a kid, you, you took some kids to this movie. I did. Your own. Uh, and they said it was the best movie they'd ever seen. I was going to ask if that would be like... I am your father, Luke, to have, like, you find out that your dad has replaced your uncle in this mural of remembrance. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was way more effective to have that happen, to have Miles see his father mm-hmm. up on the wall rather than see his father actually pass away. And to be confronted with, you know, your evil doppelganger, the prowl- who's now the Prowler, like, mm-hmm. pretty heavy stuff. It was really heavy. And also, the, the way it was drawn... Did you like, have to, like, explain that to your kids? Is it really, no. Oh, okay. No. Not explain it like, this is what's happening, but, like, did you have to, like, be like, it's going to be okay, or, you know, like... I think that... Or were you like, there is a darkness in all of us, and I, it's better that you find this out now? <laughs> well, a little bit of from column A, and a yeah. little bit from column B. I had spent the morning reading them the unsealed indictments. <laughs> so I was like, oh, you want a break? Fine. Watch a light entertainment. Yeah. Um, I, uh... I think that one thing that, that the way to answer that question is to speak to something else that is just so impressive about the movie, which is that the movie, like, like Spider-Man, the true essence of a Spider-Man story, is, has a heroism and an optimism baked into it. So I don't think you leave that movie being like Miles' dream is dead. It's crushed. You leave the movie just as much excited about Gwen's new spider team that's going to come rescue him as you do about what this means. You know, I, I think... The nature of the Spider-Man character is that it gets real fucking gnarly and he's still some, he or she or it or they or any, or the fucking car still has a sense of humor and a spark of hope and that wins out. That's sort of just essential to the project. And I, and I think that the movie communicates that in a lot of ways, one of which was, my buddy Justin sent me a link to this, like Daniel Pemberton's score mm-hmm. is doing just as much creatively in terms of mashing stuff up as the visuals where, you know, Miles has a theme Prowler has a theme. Gwen has those drums that play through the whole yeah. movie. Uh, Hobie has the guitar that comes in. And as that ending builds to a crescendo, each piece gets laid on top of each other. So it it seems overwhelming. Like, oh, this is crescendo. And they also the have like the entire Metro Boomin like that soundtrack where it's but, like the James Blake song that plays when Miles is in his room. I was like, this is pretty effective shit. But <laughs> it's telling you that all of these things are coming together. You know, it's communicating yeah. this feeling that it's that hope isn't lost, but it's just going to get it's going to get hard. By the way, Spider-Man India? Oh, yeah. That was so, okay. This is good. That is this so is a, funny. This it's is so a good um, uh, segue into 
what would be your like time capsule? Like, I want to extract this, put it on YouTube, and watch it over and over again. Moment or sequence from the movie? I love that whole sequence. The the saving, yeah, yeah, Mumbatton, but yeah. also that that I, I should have the guy's name in front of me, like that voice performance and the whole thing. Where it's just like it's being it's easy being Spider Man. Oh yeah, it's so funny. And then the introduction of Hobie is great. Like that whole it just builds and builds and builds. But but in terms of just visual storytelling, that Miles Gwen. Yeah, sequence is just where like she's hanging upside down and he's sitting and down. yeah, and they're just they're separated but they're together and it's it's oh, man I just this movie this movie literally had everything any mild critiques any any like anything that you would say even as like a counterbalance to all this and you can say no I struggle okay. thinking of one and and yeah people will correctly point out that like. I did see it with my daughters who were like, this is the greatest movie ever. Um, so that also adds an extra patina. You know, it's okay of, sometimes of to be like, it's the greatest movie ever. For me, it kind of was because I love this type of movie, but I also love, call me corny, like I love that so much thought and care and wit and heart went into something so big on the biggest possible canvas. It cost a ton of money. I'm sure it was no easy feat. You know, uh, Lord and Miller are famously very, very exacting and demanding. and um, But it worked. You know, it, sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the wallet app and you're good to go. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at Ugg.com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I feel bad bringing up the idol now. No, I think it's perfect. I feel great talking about the idol okay. now. Because you know what? Sometimes it doesn't work. All right. Um, I So the second episode of the aisle, it's not really necessary to do much of a plot recap of it because I think that structurally and almost uh, 
substantively, it kind of retraces the steps of the first episode. So mm-hmm. you get like the first half of the episode of the idol of the second episode of the idol is essentially a behind the scenes look at the machinations of the music industry. We mm-hmm. get to see a video shoot, very uh, Black Swanish. Uh, video shoot I would describe it as I like that you're saying it It follows the same path but this time our feet are totally bloody bloody and, and we've been cutting the inside of our thighs yeah um, and then the second half of the episode mm-hmm. is uh, a sexual bacchanal with a lot of drug use a lot of uh, very like you know explicit sounding sex I would mm. say especially and Shout out to the Foley operators. By the end of it, we get sort of the first turn of this series, which is that this guy, Tedros Tedros, mm. important, that, that that's his name, is going to move in with Jocelyn, the star of the show, the star of, yeah, seems of, the, of the world here, and start to get his claws into her. I have a question for you. Okay. So here's who's in Idol Gang right now. Mm-hmm. Me. Are you still in the gang? I'm in, I'm in Idol Gang. This oh, is, after this episode? For sure. This is an incredible... This, is, this might be your toughest one. Idol Gang is yeah. me, yeah. Fantasy, and Manola Dargis. Now, Sean, I love... Sean is a troll. Uh-huh. That doesn't surprise me. I don't me. think so. Sean, Sean, is, is, Sean is a cinematic Sean's troll. the last honest man in this world. <laughs> what about Joe Rogan? Well, <laughs> okay. All right. Wow. Um... Okay, so that's that's who's pro. That's who the show. I know is in the gang. Me, Manola, and Sean. I did get a text from a uh, very talented uh, television writer director Ooh. who has been on this podcast. Sources say who was like, I can't help it. I kind of love it. I won't out her uh-huh. unless she wants to be outed when she hears this. Okay, and then she can come on and defend herself as she. Sh- Here's the reason why should. I like this show so much. Uh huh. So much. Here's the reason why I like this show. Don't just let me be me. I let you be you. What's going to be top be ten? Me. This or Last of Us? Um. But uh, is it only one? Only one can be in there. Which is more likely to be on your top ten? Because you announced Last of Us was. I didn't say that. I said <laughs> Last of Us was in the top. Did I say Last of Us when, is when in we the were, final top ten? I 10? think that there was a moment when you made the. You know the, the the nicotine lozenge may have worn off in an episode earlier this <laughs> year, <laughs> where I, I don't know. And you were like, I feel like you felt like you were being not being um, positive enough. And you're like, look, this will be on my top ten. And I was like, I can use this and weaponize it against Chris later in the year. Yeah, because I never do that with any of your outlandish statements that you make. You never do. That's why I think this is a successful friendship. Like when we do the top five movies of the year, and you're like, oh yeah, across the Spider Verse. <laughs> That's the only movie I'll see for the rest of the year. Oh, that's not true. I saw the new uh, Nicole Hall of Center, and that's almost as good as Spider-Verse. Um, that's my Spider-Verse. One thing that came out, and there was a Manola Dargis interview with Sam Levinson, uh, The Weeknd, and uh, Lily Rose Depp, and the Sunday New York Times. And uh, one thing that was apparent mm-hmm. is both Manola and the creators of this show yeah. think they're making a comedy. Mm-hmm. Do you think this show is a comedy? <laughs> Do you think this show is more satirical? I don't believe them either. But like, okay, so this was a knock against like Phantom Thread, right? right. Like is that like you could say that there's Phantom a lot Thread of- Phantom Thread is a comedy. Okay. But you don't think that the idol is funny? No. No, okay. I think it it flirted with being funny in the first 20 minutes of the first episode. But it I don't doesn't... think that's the funny part. I don't think that the funny part is- I mean, I think that there is some elements of that. and uh, But I think that the funny part is him being like, Tedros being like, 
When we first met, we talked about when doves cry and you have a picture of Prince in your house. There are no coincidences. It's like, that is not a coincidence. It's Prince. These are, this, is, this, is, this is three people who don't have a sense of humor thinking something is funny. Okay. There's not a single funny thing about this. His name is Tedros Tedros. I don't, think they un- I don't think they understand jokes. I mean, show me anything in the oeuvre of those three individuals that suggests like a deep and mordant wit lurking inside of it. Well, him. you have to see Euphoria season two. And funny? There's parts of it that are fucking hilarious. Okay, Kai, did good. you watch Euphoria season two? Are you going to pull me into pro idol gang? Let's just see yes, what This doing. is procedural. Let's just add. Okay. I, okay. I watch Euphoria is season the, two. Is the Oklahoma bathroom scene not funny? Yes. Thank you. She said, yes, it's not funny. No, yes, it's funny. Yes, it's funny. Yes, There it's are funny. parts of Euphoria season okay, two that so, are very Okay, funny. so I retract. I retract. Weekend, not a laugh riot. Abel, I wouldn't say, like, I can't wait I, to see Abel's set at the comedy <laughs> shop. You know? I, this show... Look, it, okay. <laughs> you can tell me that in an interview with I, a gray lady that they said that it's supposed I to be funny. And I laughed last night you by did? myself watching that show when they, when they were like, his name is Tedros Tedros. And Hank Azaria was like, and she's like, he's a person of color. Oh yeah, that and was funny. They were like, oh, he's wait, Hawaiian. You're right. Wait, that was really funny. Yeah. That was a good scene. I'm sorry. You're right. I Thank you for that. I thought Hank Azaria was really good in the episode actually. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. That's a great point. That was really, that was actually funny. And that suggested something. That- and all his Neil Strauss stuff where he's like, I'm not going to call her back. And then he calls her back and he's like, I don't, I just thought there was like a kind of darkly funny element to this show. I, I think that. And it helped. It helped me enjoy it. I, I thought this was a, a truly awful episode. <laughs> like really, really bad. Like they, like a little bit. Any other network wouldn't have been like, uh, look, there's some, I, I know we were sort of doing political jokes and like, but there was something vaguely Trumpy about HBO being like, not only is this coming out, we're taking it to fucking can and it's good. And guess what? We're going to blow your mind. Oh, also it's a comedy or it's sexy, whatever. Fuck you, you can't handle it. <laughs> like that is, and everybody's buying it because it's on at 9 p.m. Who's everybody is buying it? I, it's me, Manola Dargis, and Sean. The people I count on most <laughs> for artistic and aesthetic purity. Yeah. I'm not, okay. I don't think people are buying it. And I think that the odds of this getting renewed are very small. But I'm saying it is on. You are wrong. No, I think it's, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I don't think it's coming back. Why? Because it fucking sucks. Because it's a disaster. But people are watching it. Are they? I don't know. I got like 900,000 first, first episode. They had 9,000. That's like, that's succession numbers. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, I think that okay. they have like, they're pot committed to this. I would be shocked if, I mean, maybe. Oh, you're right. I don't have any inside knowledge. That is me. That was me putting my thumb on the scale saying, please don't make more of this. Right. But. Um, some, and to our listeners, we don't have to do this every week. No, no, no. I don't think we will. I, I, I think that it is still Interesting. I, you got me worked up by bringing Manola into this. You know I take her very Do you know seriously. what else is funny? That's yeah. his house that she lives in. Yeah, I know. That's fucking hilarious. But that's not supposed to be funny. It is funny. It he, is. He, def- he gave himself a rat tail. Like he's, He knows that this is stupid. He knows that this character is supposed to be pathetic. Um, I don't... All right. Okay. I'm going to consider... I'll watch episode three with that in mind. Okay. He, here is my... Also, I think Jane Addams is having a good time. And, and In a good way? Yes. Yeah. And I hope she bought herself something really nice because I actually, she, you know, historically plays very mousy parts. And I think this is awesome yeah. that she's doing this. And I enjoyed her speech and I enjoyed her performance. I think that it's really hard to swallow what you're suggesting because I think the show wants Jocelyn to have some pathos or humanity, but I guess it also wants her just to be a joke. 
because you'd have to be a joke in some ways to be behaving or to be accepting and to be trusting in the ways that she is. Mm-hmm. And I think that the show is so not centered with her point of view or emotional truth or anything that we're just kind of lost. We're just being presented with her as a blank slate, which maybe intellectually you could make a case for that. I don't think the show is communicating that very well. Are we mocking her? Do we feel bad for her? Do we understand her at all? Not really. The thing that really lost me is the second half of the episode. And I can't speak to authorial intent, mm-hmm. but I will mm-hmm. say that I thought it made it, it commits the cardinal sin, not the carnal sin, <laughs> of erotic thrillers or erotic entertainment in general, which is that it's boring oh, yeah. and kind of dumb. I don't think it's hot. And I think that I don't think you I don't I, I don't know that you're supposed to. I, mean, I just I, sexiness is deeply subjective. Uh-huh. Um yeah. but generally in entertainment, it comes from understanding what characters want and what makes them tick or what makes them do all things, a lot of things more than tick. And then they're put in these situations that feel true to the characters, but more than that, could feel specific or kinky or surprising. And to have boring-ass weekend just be like reading like Chirons from Pornhub, <laughs> like <laughs> you keep the closed captions on. Um, is just what? do mind- you actually do you flick on the option on Pornhub to have the CNN ticker go? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Chris Licht is out. Better close this window. Is Matt it- Bellany might need me. Jack Smith's giving a press conference <laughs> at three p.m. Oh well, still t- <laughs> that's hours away. Um, <laughs> I think I just thought that was it. Just was so lame, uh-huh. and it was, and that that's the problem. I a, a buddy of mine was saying. That in his opinion, as a, as coming from a as a fan of like movies like Basic Instinct, like legitimately like a fan, like that's yeah. a great movie. Um, that one of the mistakes made in the show is that the pop star should have been Taylor Swift, not Britney Spears. Like, give me a character whose private longings and desires run counter to the public oh. persona. So then you could be like, oh, there's actually conflict here, or surprise, or you know, some different kind of stakes. But when her Entire image is apparently um, based on the Christina Aguilera videos from 2002. Yeah, dirty. Then for her to be like, and guess what else? I like to fuck dudes. Be like, what? Yeah. You do? That's an interesting point. I would actually say if I had a critique of the show. Which you don't. <laughs> just because one, this is your Spider-Verse. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I would say that it's a couple of years too late. Okay, and that there yeah. is something unremarkable about watching it on HBO. Yeah. And that I'm not like, I can't believe, like it's not like seeing Dennis Franz's ass. In terms of your erotic <laughs> Mount Rushmore. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's not it's like, not shocking. it doesn't feel like it's, because I just, I think I've lost the capacity to be shocked. I've lost the capacity. Mm. I have things that I don't particularly like. Yeah. And I have things that I do like, but I don't have like really, I, I just don't feel ever like scandalized. Is this the part like of the I don't pot- like watching uh, cannibalism, but cannibalism itself isn't shocking to me. Forty five seconds ago, I started privately playing the fortune cookie game where you add in the bedroom to everything. <laughs> so I just added it to everything you just so said. I'm like I don't like cannibalism in the bedroom. Yeah, I like things that I like in yeah. the bedroom. I like watching CNN in the bedroom. Um, <laughs> I thought you were watching SVU in the bedroom. That's true. Um, this is I don't want to put you on the spot like this because I actually I don't have an answer either. But I I do wonder like what what TV shows in this most recent era have been sexy and why? Like, that's something to think about. Well, it's not can, something that a lot of shows do. It's a difficult do. word to like, because I think you get into semantic differences. Like, okay. I, I kind of like, 
one of the hottest things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. I'm being honest. Dennis Franz's is uh, the moment in the hotel room between George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez and Out of Sight. Yeah. When it kind of is cutting back and forth between them having the drink in the hotel lobby and then also them being upstairs Mm -hmm. and him doing his speech and then like them almost kissing and then kissing. You know, like that is pretty hot. Yeah. You know, but it's also romantic and it's also beautiful to look Mm -hmm. at and everything. I don't, what was your question? Well, I don't think that we just, this this is part of a larger conversation that I'm sure that actually Sean and Amanda probably had too. Like, sex is out of pop culture. Yeah, right. Totally. So, and, and it's but been removed. It's been stripped away from a movies, lot. Yeah. It's out of. And so, what are people going to point to? Like, like the Uncle Sex on House of the Dragon. Like, we we don't have stuff that yeah. that talks about desire or whatever. But and 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 this is recency bias. And I'm not saying this is some like incredibly racy uh, show. But I think about one of the things that I loved about Daisy Jones which I will continue to be the drum for, if only because it tried things that we aren't used to seeing at the moment on TV, was that when it brought the two leads together to write a song, not to have sex um, right. or to tie each other up, it gave us two attractive people who desperately wanted something that the other one could unlock. Yeah. And you could feel that palpably, and it, it communicated that in the way that it was shot and everything. This show doesn't do that. you know, And, and, it, and it's weird. Like, you can't, I will be fair, and I'm sorry I got a little heated at the stop, at the top. But do, like, do not bother th- me. Man. But, there, but there is, you can't dismiss it because you know people are messi- people are coming up to me, tears in their eyes, being like, "Sir, sir, this show is beautifully directed." Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So I watch it on mute. I guess you know. There's so much. There's so I, many resources I, I, being yeah, poured can, into I, it. I understand. I think. I think the process stuff was pretty interesting, even if it's bullshit. I liked the music video set. I liked like the. The idea that this person is like slowly being broken down and that their own sort of drive to impress this person who's now in their head yeah. has cr- crippled them and, and they can't finish the job here. You know, there there's parts about it where I'm just like, did, like the, did, the Vanity did, Fair writer would not be on the set for this. Like did, they would have just ejected this person. They said the same thing about Tim Alberta. If the Chris <laughs> Lick's true. morning workout That is sessions. true. That is true. What, what, uh, what, what about Jane Adams? like uh, Turning to him and be like, your story just got a lot bigger. No one's ever said that. No one's ever said that. But no, not that part when she was just like, guys, we're beginning of the second episode. Clear the stage. I'm going to give you an exposition dump. Oh, yeah. Last year, right. when this was happening right. and your mother was ill and these things happened. Okay. All right. Well, just tell us. Um, like, I, I think it is, there are a lot of reasons and a lot of ways to criticize the show. I think my number one complaints, if I could distill them, is that I just don't think it is successfully functioning as a narrative television show whatsoever. Well, and two, it it's not sexy and, and that shit's boring. Okay, so give me some of it. Like they've I, also got a, there's an interesting iceberg on the horizon for the show, mm. which is obviously uh, the weekend does know how to fashion hits. Yes, I don't know if Tedros Tedros does. He's got and, his own label, and they've got a little bit of a that thing you do problem coming up, where it's like. I'm I'm good with hearing I'm a freak. It's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty good. It's a little bit of an earworm, Catchy. but I wouldn't say that it's like my favorite jam of all time. Right. So I, I'm I'm actively looking forward to seeing what Jocelyn does next. Well, again, like his first suggestion was apparently to just do the same thing that Fleetwood Mac did on Big Love in 1987, which is just kind of moan into a microphone yeah. and then loop it. You fucking love that song, though. I do. I'm the target audience. <laughs> uh, listen, I believe in Tedros's musical vision. It's Jocelyn. It's the Jocelyn piece. Ooh. What about that? Yeah, Who's I love this. Who's the real this. idol? Okay? All right. Okay, Team Tedros. Should we, uh, should we move on to Top Chef before we get out of here? We should. 
All right, let's get through Top Chef. Um, you want to do spoilers for this? Yeah, yeah, spoilers for the finale of Top Chef season twenty, the World All Stars. Do you want to do Padma or the winner? Winner. Okay, Buddha, goat? Question mark. It. He was so far beyond anyone. Was he though? That I felt almost annoyed going into this finale because it was, it was not. Close. I think everybody on that judging panel was looking for any reason not to give it to him. I 100% agree. And it was odd that he stumbled at the very end. I thought that was kind of, that was kind of interesting. And it, it seems pretty clear that if Sarah had cooked her liver, if Sarah had cooked the liver properly, she would have won. I think that's 100% true. Um, or at least that's how it was edited. It was strange to me that like everything, I, I like the, Padma's the, crying, the judge, the, the French judge is like, I liked this and I liked that, you know, like, and Tom was kind of like, what, what are we talking about here? We got to like, it's yeah. this meal. It's not what you feel and it's what, mm-hmm. not what they could be in the future. Uh, I thought, I thought that they, at least the edit that they gave it made it seem like it was like 16, 15 judges decision, you know, kind of like in yeah. a boxing match. I, I, um, taking it one step back, I thought this was an amazing season of the highest caliber cooking, the highest caliber contestants. The, the most challenging uh, challenges. And I think so bravo to the Bravo team mm-hmm. and the Magical Elves for pulling that off. I did think at the end, it did feel a little... Buddha was so far in a way ahead up into going into the finale that it was actually sapping my interest in it. It felt not competitive at all. I, there were people who I think could have cooked to his level who fell away for com- competition reasons. And that's kind of the problem why Buddha is the like prince Mar, who was promised. Or? Well, Buddha is technically the best and the most competitively agile mm-hmm. of anyone who's ever been on the show, apparently. I thought going back to the season, like someone like Begonia was cooking on a level that Buddha yes. could have beaten Buddha in terms of creativity and chops, but she couldn't play the game to the degree that he could. Ali and Charbel similarly were on that level, and I would have liked to see Ali I, I loved Ali. I thought he seemed to plateau at a certain point, whether he was like... He, he, he did. He just seemed to like kind of not run out of ideas, but maybe maybe he did, or maybe like the the sort of length of the season kind of became a challenge. I, yeah. I, yeah. I, I just, I felt like in a way, I mean, Sarah came on strong I probably prefer right to eat Ali's food yeah. a, along with Sarah and Amar like the most out of these, you know? But to, to take a, a commonly used phrase from our boss, like uh, Buddha felt like a cheat code up until the finale. And then I felt like the finale itself was sapped of some drama or intrigue up until like the edit stuff, you mm-hmm. know, in the very end. It didn't, it felt a little off to me. Like it, it, well, it, it didn't land the season in the way that I was in hoping. Pre- so like in previous, wasn't there a season w- where you got mad because they made it, they had to make a dessert in the finale or something? Wasn't there like some, was it a Brooke season that Brooke lost because at the end? Oh, oh no! The season that I constantly point to was they did a, they did one finale Iron Chef style where it was voted on live course by course, and that was okay. the Brooke versus Kristen Kish finale. And then that's the one where uh, this I I I, I say this because it's self serving, but because this is a hundred percent self serving. But I also appreciated it. I wrote a scathing piece about that, and then. Tom tweeted at me saying, you're right. It yeah. won't happen again. Yeah. Not that I stopped it. I think no, they no, all no. understood um, that. So they stopped They, they stopped getting in their way. Basically, I'm, what, my point was that this is what happens when we get what we want. Like, mm. they're like, go cook what you want. Yeah, wherever you progressive, want. Progressive, four-course progressive meal. And, you know, like, you have all the money you need and everything. And, you know, it's a little bit of like a he can't find a lobster in Paris kind of thing 
or plantains or whatever. However, one thing that was in abundance in Paris is proper traditional Mexican ingredients. <laughs> I'm waiting for the question, like, did this make me reconsider my did stance? Uh, no. <laughs> no. But I thought that you would have, like, I can't believe you didn't lead with that. What do you think is more likely, that you will forgive me for having Mexican food in Paris or that you will like the idol? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you for professional reasons because we have to keep doing this. Yeah. So... <laughs> <laughs> is that what you were looking for? <laughs> um, okay. The only other thing I would say was that I, th- I think in the episode, Buddha says something about like an emptiness that he felt at the end of the yes. last win and how he didn't know like, you know, and people talk about that. Like they get to the t- pinnacle of like what they're mm-hmm. doing and, and, and then they're like, shit, what happens next? Mm-hmm. And it is really interesting. I think Buddha's almost far more famous for his Top Chef accomplishments than his restaurant accomplishments. I'll be interested to see what happens with him next. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before. Like, it's a different career and it's a different skill set. And he talks about mentorship, which I think is legitimate, of someone like Claire Smith, who was a judge again, the British chef. She was a judge again in the And he worked with her at Gordon Ramsay, Gordon Ramsay, when he was staging there. He was a low-level cook. And just to pull her out of a very large hat, like... She came up, quote-unquote, the right and traditional way. She opens her own restaurant. It gets Michelin stars, and that's her restaurant. And then she'll make television appearances and do the side things. But her job, her career, is managing the profile and the food and the staff at her restaurant that brings in people from all around the world. Mm -hmm. And if you are someone like Buddha who has this wild competitive streak and also this ability to be ingenious in the moment on this stage and on this scale, why would you do that? What is pleasing about that to you? What, that would feel limiting. I mean, that's being a manager more than being a cook, yeah. you know? And I don't think that's what he wants. So I'll be really interested to see what happens to him because, yeah, to your point, like, he, he is the top chef goat. There's no question yeah. that he is. Um, and especially to do it back-to-back, which is truly insane. Yeah, he's been on the road for, I think, would Padma say that they shoot from, like, End of August to the beginning of October. She was gone for two months. You yeah. know what I mean? So Yeah. Um, it, it, it's wild. I guess I just felt, I don't know. I, I, I didn't feel as triumphant at the end of it, maybe because it was repetitive, because it was the same winner. Um, maybe it's because it was the end of an era, because this was Padma's last episode, something mm-hmm. that she clearly felt, even if it yeah, wasn't Yeah, I mean, addressed. she's in tears at the end of the final meal, so I think she... Had I mean, there, so she did an LA Times interview. She said, said that she had she didn't know, but she thought it might be her last season. I think that she seems like she's somebody who knows that that's the last time she's going to eat the final, you know, the finale meal. Can I make a suggestion to our friends who may or may not listen who well, work on the show? Well, I want to ask you a question. Mm-hmm. I mean, you read that LA Times interview, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that she says, obviously, she's like, I want to dedicate more time to Taste the Nation. I think she was like, I'm very tired. She's also like, I can't eat this way anymore. Yeah. So she eats every single dish, every single episode. She's the only judge yes. who does that because she eats all of the quick fires and then she eats all of the eliminations. And I think she was just kind of like, it's tough. It's tough to do that to your body. And I wonder whether or not that will be a consideration going forward. I wonder whether or not like they won't, they might have a host but that host might not also be the quick fire judge the way Padma is. Yeah, or the host does quick fires and doesn't join the final, the final. tasting. I mean, it's just I think that's I think that's 100 percent a part of it. Or you just get someone younger who's yeah. just like, yeah, I can do this, I and can then be proved wrong in five years, but right. can do it for the short term. But I that speaks to the the point that I wanted to make, which is I hope that they consider this 
this really was the, if she's going to leave, if someone's going to leave, leave now. 20 seasons is a nice round number. They did 301 episodes up to this point. You know, they, 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 this really was a, a victory lap for the franchise, considering all of the international editions mm-hmm. and the winners and the, the way that it worked. It just worked bringing these people together and shooting it in other countries. There was no guarantee that this would work, and it did. Mm-hmm. And it was success, a very memorable season. You're losing your host in the face, uh, one of the, the key faces of the, of the franchise. Use this as an opportunity to start over. Do you, but do you mean that in terms of the talent involved or in terms I, of the mechanics of the game? I think that you should look at everything. Here's my hope. I hope that they shoot the new season in New York. I hope that they're like, let's, not that that's coming home. The first season was in San Francisco. But it would be great after these years of like traveling and pandemic season and everything to be like, okay, we're back in what is traditionally the heart of American. Sitting in a wooden box outside of a restaurant. In a yurt. Grass crawling over our feet. And being like, why did all the James Beard winners come from Los Angeles? Um, Right. But just in terms of like the energy of, of a city that's renewed and coming back and being like, we have a new host. We're going to pull a really interesting group of chefs, maybe all young chefs. You know, I, I don't know. Like, let's let's see. Which doesn't mean... Top Chef Dime Square. Is that what you're saying? Kind of. Kind of, I am. Like, don't fuck it up. Like, obviously, you want to keep the good times rolling. You don't want to... This isn't a new Coke situation. But it's going to feel different no matter what. So I hope they use it as an opportunity to to really level down again because... This was intentionally like such a, such a high level of competition and some familiar faces. And for people who watch World Editions, everyone knew someone in it. Um, 100% other direction this time. Okay. That's Mechanically, gameplay-wise, or season structure, I mean, I'm putting you on the spot. Was there anything, is, is there any idea that you have, no, you know, not to give them away, mm-hmm. but of how they could make the finale is more dramatic or is there something that you think that they should do with Last Chance Kitchen? Is there a way that they could maybe change the sort of roteness of quick fire elimination? I mean, this is the same thing they do with Survivor where I, they have reward challenge, I, immunity challenge, but... I, I think that the thing you're speaking to and, and why, maybe one of the reasons why the finale felt flat was that what brings out the television-worthy greatness of these individually great cooks is the limitation, mm-hmm. is the game is the having to suddenly do something they've never done before. And there was no limitations put on the finale. And no limitations makes it seem almost flat. Mm -hmm. Um, Because honestly, at this point, 20 seasons in, like I think Gabri's a genius chef. He's awesome and a wonderful guy. And I would love to eat his food. I'd love to talk to him. Like he just seems great. Um, And what was interesting and sometimes confounding (laughs) was the way that he couldn't always shoehorn what he was doing into these things and yet somehow still was a finalist. Ditto Buddha, like... It was interesting that when he was left alone, the complaints were too much luxury. You know, that he was just falling back on these sort of hallmarks of like this butter and caviar and things. And he cooks at a caviar bar. You know what I mean? Like he's used to high-end stuff. And it's much more interesting to see him do a Texas barbecue challenge, I think, with that skill set. So I don't know what you do, but I do think that in the past, they've sometimes tried to have the finale um, nod to the location in a way. Yeah. You know, and obviously opulence would fit for Paris unless it was just, you know, let's do a street taqueria um, to, to appeal to you. Yeah, yeah, right. And like maybe just, you know, finger on the pulse of what the real trends are in the city. <laughs> the Oaxacan arrondissement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so I, I, I wonder about that. Like in almost as if the finale should be, what have you learned this season? You know what I mean? Like it, that it feels cumulative. Sure. Because the meals I think that, that they always, cooked that, in the finale yeah. are meals that they planned before they arrived for the season. There's a fine a balance for that. So Survivor, they do in the finale, 
what happens is like there's basically four people left usually. The winner of the elimination challenge says, okay, it's going to be me and another person are going to the finale, the final three. And then the last two people have a fire making competition where they basically mm. like have to build a fire out of like a flint. Like a, like a fast fire, if you will. What's another word for that? Quick fire. Oh, perhaps. Yeah. And uh, I hate that sometimes because mm -hmm. I'm like, so you play, I've watched like 13 hours of this television show so that we could get down to who strikes a flint better. Mm -hmm. where the game seems way more multifaceted than that. Right. So there's a part of me that wouldn't want any too, too much trickery. It's like penalty kicks. But it you would be like, it would essentially there. be like, what if there was a final four? So like put Amar uh -huh. or uh, Ali in the final four, right? And then Ali and, so Buddha wins and Buddha's like, I want to go to the final three with Gabri. And now Sarah and uh, Ali have to do a quick fire against one another, last chance kitchen style, and Buddha gets to call out the the thing he wants. He's like, okay, make an omelet, uh, you know? And on one hand, that would be very exciting mm -hmm. and a, a cool element of it. On the other hand, it wouldn't really be sort of a testament to the cumulative experiences of the people yeah. when they're like trying to cook their pasts and cook their traditions and also like have gotten to this point. It's 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 a fine line between like, you know, kind of keeping things the same, to staying too traditional and staying too stuck in your ways and I, reinventing the wheel. I think I would lean towards, as you're saying this, I think that I would love to see them do something that befits the location so that if they were doing something... Yeah, but they changed the location in the finale. I, I, no, I no, still I kind, of, kind of don't like that. But I'm saying if they change... I'm not saying cumulative for the year. I agree with you. That would be awesome. But if they go to France and they're like, okay, so the traditional, like the Escoffier court food involved these courses. And one was a, a, a roasted meat, one is a soup, one is a dessert, one is a whatever. Then you have the parameters sure. of the meal and then they can steer themselves into that in yeah. a way. Um, just saying four course progressive meal that's the best food you've ever made is starting to feel flat because the one thing You want to bring think, back that Denver altitude <laughs> where nobody's bread rises. Oh my God. <laughs> Well, oh, you know, there is a competitive advantage to playing in Denver, as yeah. we're about to find out tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, it, look, we can put a button on it by saying it's a testament to the show that we're still this invested in it as entertainment, but yeah. also it's somehow that it's purity or authenticity. I think it it's unparalleled in the sense that it's the only one that I watch, but also of reality shows. But also, I just think it's I think it's really great. I think they did an amazing season. They should be commended for how, just how smoothly, how easy they make it look. But I think that one thing to look at for the next season is how to make the finale feel... Finale-ish. Yeah, and feel worthy of the season that preceded it. Okay. Thank you to Kai McMullen. Thank you, Kai. This who's was... gone on this journey with us today as our producer. Should we tip the audience to know that my children have been watching something on and an iPad in the other room? sending you gifts, being like, where are you? Uh, so thank you, Andy, for your contributions today. As the father of daughters, who's going to get yelled at when we wrap up for taking too long? Um, it's camp. It's dad camp. We will be back on Thursday. I think by then we will have Black Mirror. What day is it? The 11th, 12th? Uh, 12, 13. It, it drops that day. Okay. So I don't so. know how many you're going to watch that morning before we record, but. <laughs> how many are you going to watch? That's the real question. Uh, and then I, all, I was also maybe, I was eyeballing that show Spymaster on HBO. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. I uh, tried that out last night and yeah. I was like, this show stinks. And it was because I had it dubbed. <laughs> so I went back. What language is it in? It's in Romanian. Oh, of course. But I was, I was watching that. it and they were like, Father, I don't know where you are going. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? And then I was like, oh, I have it on dubbed. So don't make the same mistake twice. 
And there's a bunch of stuff coming. So I'm going to watch the third episode of The Idol in the original Romanian. <laughs> and I think that would be an improvement. <laughs> Hank Azaria does all the voices. Right? That's controversial. Okay. Hank Azaria doing voices, you know? That's true. He's safe, though, in this one. All right. Let's talk to you guys later. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Ugg. Y'all know Ugg is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think Ugg season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from Ugg. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. Ugg has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at Ugg.com.